How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the sixth episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich, the dude cuckoo enough to spend two years reading all the U.S. presidential memoirs, and now I'm here to share some of the interesting stories and perspectives from my studies. I hope that you enjoy it. For today's episode, we're heading back to the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties was a transformative era in American society. It was characterized by significant social, cultural, and economic changes. So it was a time of basically widespread prosperity. It was fueled by technological advancements, uh, booming industries, increased consumerism, uh, so social norms, along with that, went underwent a profound shift with the emergence of new lifestyles, the rise of jazz music, uh, changes of culture, and the expansion of women's rights throughout the suffrage movement. Uh, it reflected a period, basically, of, of unprecedented freedom and experimentation. It, uh, it, was, it was really a true cultural revolution. So uh, politically, the Roaring Twenties occurred in the aftermath of World War I. Uh, World War One was the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, and uh, while the U.S.'s involvement in World War One was relatively brief, only about one and a half years of the uh, entirety of the war, uh, it was a political hotbed, uh, and it was a shift from normal policy of non-intervention in European wars and affairs. So the election of 1920 was... Uh, very much a debate between the continuance of Wilson's progressive policies, which was uh, more proactive foreign affairs, being involved more heavily. He wanted to be part of the League of Nations, uh, things like that, uh, or a retraction into a stronger focus back home. So uh, Wilson was one side of that argument, and then Teddy Roosevelt actually uh, was the other side. Uh, Teddy had been playing the contrarian role against Wilson for, for many years, and uh, he had set the groundwork for uh, basically a, a Republican win in that election of 1920. Uh, and he had intended to be that person to win uh, the third term for himself. It kind of escaped him uh, with the elections in 1912, and he was ready to give it one more shot uh, and try and accomplish more. Uh, that he wanted to do uh, within the, the U.S. government. So, uh, but unfortunately, Teddy Roosevelt died in 1919, uh, which left the door wide open for someone else to come in and take the reins. Uh, and so that person ended up being Warren G. Harding. Now, Harding was a lesser-known Ohio senator who had made uh, himself a fortune and fame as a businessman, uh, he was specifically good with newspapers. He had bought a newspaper back in his local town of Marion, Ohio, and uh, he generally was more of a compromise candidate. Uh, he uh, met more checked boxes than the other candidates that were presented in the stead of Roosevelt, and uh, so people backed Harding as uh, their candidate, but he quickly captivated the American people. So most of the times, compromise candidates may not work out as well uh, due to their lack of uh, strong base. But Harding wasn't really like that. He captivated the American people, uh, and 
at the time, I think the, the populist movement was a desire for an, a more isolationist uh, foreign policy uh, and, and stronger mandates back home. So uh, we had joined World War I, we didn't like it, and we, we didn't want that to be the status quo from here on out. So uh, Harding easily defeated the Democrat up for election, whose name was James Cox. Uh, and fun fact of history, which I didn't know uh, leading up to this, was that uh, James Cox's vice presidential candidate was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. Uh, so back in 1920, FDR got his first uh, taste of national uh, electoral campaigns uh, as VP, uh, which would you know play a strong part in his eventual election up to 1932. So as the economy soared under Warren Harding's uh, administration, uh, by 1923, he was probably one of the most popular presidents ever during his presidency. Uh, so the aftermath of war, it's historically, it's a great time for technological advancement. So if you think about war uh, and the aftermaths of it, uh, people are forced to innovate basically for the sake of their own lives. They, they, want to, uh, they want to get a technological advantage over their opponents. And so they start to invest more heavily in technology and in research and just ensuring that um, they understand as best as possible uh, what edge can we get on our opponents? So examples of that is going to be investments in vehicles or investments in radio, uh, which were all uh, or both of those were, were strong investments uh, and inventions within the, this, this era of, of history. So uh, they were receiving engineering attention. Uh, it was allowed to be built more in mass and at scale. And so as a result, society became faster, more informed, and culture evolved, uh, which effectively made the 1920s a very fun time. So uh, during the presidency of Warren Harding, Herbert Hoover uh, was appointed Secretary of Commerce. So Hoover made his mark during World War I. Uh, he was the leader who spearheaded the Belgium Relief. And I will probably make an episode on the Belgium Relief because it's a really great story uh, coming from World War I. Uh, but the footnotes, or the uh, summary of it is basically uh, Belgium was starving because the French and Germans and the British were fighting just south of their country. Uh, and so Hoover, who had just happened to be uh, happened to be in London at the time when World War One breaks out. He kind of just takes control of this Belgium relief. He starts to uh, gain funds for it, and it was a very neutral affair. The Germans condoned it. They allowed uh, basically the Belgian population to survive during these these years of war. Uh, and as word got out of of his his efforts in that, uh, he grew very popular. So he he almost. Uh, he was almost one of the strongest war heroes at the time, despite not being a general or, you know, really partaking in the war at all besides, uh, you know, the, the volunteerism efforts. So, uh, but Hoover had been away from the country for several decades. Uh, he had been in London, he had been in Australia and China. And uh, so when he did come home, uh, he wasn't as uh, politically in the know uh, in his homeland, and he didn't know really who was deserving of trust. So uh, there was a couple of people who did want Hoover to run for president in 1920, and he ultimately decided against it. 
uh, for for various reasons. Uh, but he did join the the administration for Harding, and so uh, Hoover recounted in his memoirs uh, that when he joined President Harding's administration, he kind of thought of it that there was a lot of undesirable characters in it, and. Uh, you know, the characters, they would eventually be known in history as the Ohio Gang. So Ohio Gang was uh, basically just a big old corruption ring. <laughs> so uh, Harding, he was, he was a boy's boy kind of guy. Uh, so he's, he's basically, uh, it felt to me reading about him and, and trying to understand this, that he was the 1920s version of a big partier. Um, so upon becoming president, Harding... Uh, took a very strong nepotism track. He appointed many of his friends from back home uh, into prominent cabinet positions. So a couple of the names that will really matter a lot are going to be Albert Fall, who was appointed Secretary of the Interior, Harry Daugherty, who was the Attorney General, his original campaign manager, and was more or less the uh, big star of this Ohio gang. Like, he kind of ran it all. Uh made sure that everything happened, was protecting Hardane in a lot of ways, made sure, you know, a lot of the money moved. Uh, he, he seemed to be very much so the, the ringleader of it all. And every ringleader has a, a right-hand man, and that right-hand man for Harry was Jesse Smith. Uh, he was appointed into the Department of Justice, uh, which as Attorney General Daugherty had uh, oversaw in the campaign. Jesse Smith was kind of his, like, gopher person, which... Basically, man, he got him coffees. He got him basically whatever he wanted, whatever he needed. Uh, Jesse Smith was his go-to man, right-hand man. Um, but two other characters then are going to be Charles Forbes, who was the director of the Veterans Bureau, and then Thomas Miller, who was alien property custodian. So this this group, as well as, you know, there, there's a lot of other names on there, but uh, those are going to be the main ones that uh, would eventually come into a lot of uh, hot water. Uh, but this group was it was high-ranking officials in the government, and uh, this group was invited over weekly to the White House. Uh, once war, once Harding assumed the presidency, he was having this group of people over every single week, and when they came over every week, they would have poker nights. And the poker nights were filled with drinking and fun uh, and you know a lot of nefarious activities. Uh, you could assume that they probably included some girls as well, uh, given at the time, you know, Harding uh, was involved in at least two extramarital affairs, uh, and he had several confirmed one-night stands as well. So uh, they were kind of partying it up every week in the White House, uh, enjoying themselves. Uh, in 1920s, this was the Prohibition era, which meant that uh, alcohol was basically completely banned in the U.S., um, so Harding, as president uh, and an advocate of prohibition, was tasked with enforcing the law of the land, which, uh, you know, is prohibition, uh, which made him basically very uh, ineffective to, to do his job, considering he was uh, having people over and they were drinking in the White House uh, every single week. So uh, that made him about as effective as doing his job as a fraternity president in charge of a dry house on college campus. You know, he was... Uh, totally brazen against the whatever rules were supposed to be uh, taking place. So, in the instance of the saying, work hard, play hard, uh, the cronies whom Harding had appointed generally forgot the first half of that saying. So, 
Uh, they were either not qualified or arguably qualified for the roles they were in, uh, which was classic case of nepotism. Uh, and the results of that was that uh, not only were they having a lot of fun and, and doing some, some crazy things, but corruption was really seeping out of the executive branch very quickly. Uh, Harding was in office two years. Uh, this corruption uh, would effectively go on for that entire period without the public really catching wind or understanding um, what exactly was going on. It, was, it took a while for people to really grab, grasp their, their head. And, you know, information, it flowed a lot slower back then, uh, so it could be more reasonable uh, to, to have that uh, lag and understanding of what was going on. But generally, uh, it wasn't until 20, or, uh, 1923 that uh, things really started to heat up. Uh, which was, again, two years into the presidency. So uh, in July of 1923, President Harding had planned to sail along the west coast of America, uh, being the first sitting president to step foot in Alaska. So uh, it was an inspection trip uh, that likely duly functioned as a campaign and a handshaking tour, Um and it was going to be a lot of fun. It was, it was a very monumental experience of going to Alaska. Uh, and his original goal was to bring his favorite cronies on the trip, such as Daugherty and Fall. Uh, but several weeks prior, Harding kind of changes his plans. He uninvites all of his friends. Uh, and he invites some more respectful guests, including the future president, Herbert Hoover, who uh, most of this uh, source material comes from. So, uh, and it's surmised that the reason that he uninvites all of those people and he invites Hoover, who uh, was not part of this group, uh, he did not, he only went to one poker night at the, the White House and he kind of told them, hey, this is not my thing. I don't want to come anymore. Uh, but he invited a couple others. And uh, basically, uh, it was surmised that uh, the main reason why he switched out the guests is three months prior to this trip. Uh, the level of corruption in the administration was starting to become known in the public. Uh, people were starting to catch wind of some foul play happening in the administration, uh, and there was an official launch of a Senate investigation into the Veterans Bureau. Uh, so in the middle of that investigation, uh, the general counsel to the Bureau, whose name was Charles Kramer, had committed suicide. So the New York Times headline in 1923 was that he was greatly upset by Legion and Congress attacks on his record and that the worried man took his own life to avoid conflict. So you're starting to get some people ask questions and you're starting to see um, a couple of people be really nervous about the questions that they're asking all up until the point where, you know, one individual took their own life. So just before the trip, the president's kind of starting to uh, see what's going on as well and, and starting to see the, the writing on the wall. So generally, Hoover's excited, though, about this trip. Uh, it's, a, it's a really cool experience. Hoover uh, had gone to Stanford uh, for college, and so he was familiar with the West Coast. Uh, and I think that he was, he was excited for this. Um, just before the trip was supposed to commence, Jesse Smith, who was that right-hand man to Harry Daugherty, uh, another member of the Ohio gang, uh, and had been uh, basically in a prominent place within the Department of Justice, also commits suicide. Uh, and this suicide happens at Attorney General Daugherty's home. So uh, while 
nothing is mentioned too strongly at the time uh, that suicide would eventually be questioned on the Senate floor. So Senator uh, from Alabama, James Heflin, uh, would allege, uh, in quotes, nobody ever knew what Smith knew, and with him dead, there was nobody to tell the story, so Jess Smith was murdered, said Senator Heflin. Uh, so the heat was clearly turning up, and there must have been a lot of pressure being felt by the cronies uh, within this Ohio gang. And uh, so when the group arrived to take this boat to Alaska, uh, Hoover noted that Harding was exceedingly nervous and distraught. Uh, so he had insisted on playing bridge, which was an old card game, uh, every waking hour of the day. So from breakfast until midnight, as this ship is sailing, uh, it was so much bridge that the four people on the boat who could play the game began to take shifts with the president so that he could continue to play that the entire day without any interruptions at all so this nervous and eccentric behavior as they're uh, cruising out to uh, alaska it clearly indicated that something was bothering the president greatly uh, and within a few days he let hoover in on the problem so uh, he called hoover into his cabin one afternoon uh, to get some alone time. So uh, while Hoover was Secretary of Commerce, he was not, again, he, he was not a member of the Ohio gang, uh, had only gone to one of their poker nights, and generally lived a, a much more conservative lifestyle than the, the rest of uh, that gang. So the president opened up the conversation with the following quote. He said, If you knew of a great scandal in our administration, would you, for the good of the country and the party, expose it publicly, or would you bury it? Hoover replied, publish it, and at least get credit for the integrity on your side. The president remarked that that method might be politically dangerous for him, to which Hoover had then asked for more details. The president went into what he would, uh, uh, what had occurred basically with his friend Jesse Smith, uh, who had committed suicide a few days prior. Uh, so the president had received word of some of the irregularities regarding some of the cases he was working on in the Justice Department, uh, to which President Harding had followed up and discovered some of the truth to the story. So he, he sent for Smith that day, uh, the day that he had uh, taken his own life, and let him know in person that he was going to be arrested that following morning. So Hoover recounts that the president tells him that Smith was clearly distraught so he went home, burned all of his papers, and then he took his own life. So, and I, and I think that Hoover must have known that Smith didn't actually take his own life at his own home, but rather at Attorney General Daugherty's house, because he asked the president next what, in, what involvement Harry Daugherty had in the events. It was his right-hand man. The death happened at his house. It's very sus, sus behavior. Uh, so the president at that time, he just dried up. He didn't want to talk about it, and he didn't talk about it the rest of the trip uh, with Hoover. So, uh, and as things progressed and they got closer to Alaska, the president became more and more nervous and thrill-seeking. So uh, he was taking stops any chance he could along the way to Fairbanks to deliver speeches, participate in parades, basically get his mind off of the problem in any way possible. So throughout Alaska, he visited... Uh, Metlakala, uh, Ketchikan, Juneau, Skagway, Seward, Anchorage, 
Nenana, Fairbanks, Valdez, Cordova, and Sitka, all within a 14-day period. So they were making lots of stops along this state, uh, and he was basically keeping himself as active as possible. Uh, and it all went good and dandy. Uh, on the return trip, Harding and company, they stopped along the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the first stop that they had was in Vancouver. So at this time, it, uh, the date was officially July 26th by the time they arrived in Vancouver. On that day, he delivers five different speeches in a row, uh, appearing you know, very worn and tired come night. Uh, he, he just he couldn't stop. He, he just kept giving speeches. He was getting involved as possible. And people loved him you know, at the time. Again, he was very popular uh, when he was in the presidency. Uh, and so he wanted to give the people what he wanted, and he wanted to get his mind off things is my uh, understanding. Uh, and so uh, he came back very worn and very tired that night. Uh, but he couldn't stop because uh, the next day he was supposed to give the biggest speech on uh, so far on the trip, which was going to be in Seattle. So uh, they're resting for this big speech in Seattle uh, on their cruise from Vancouver uh, down back into the United States. And that night, another unfortunate thing happens. Uh, this, this is a military party. Uh, you know, you're, you're escorting the president. And so there's a lot of other boats around them. And, uh, so there's two destroyer divisions and a squadron of U S Navy planes that were escorting this, this presidential party. Uh, and in the dense fog off the, off Port Townsend, which was, um, you know, in between the two uh, major cities, uh, the U.S. Army transport Henderson, which uh, that was the boat carrying the president, it rammed into one of the destroyers. Uh, so everyone on board, I'm sure, is is a little distraught, a little worried about what uh, just happened and the crash itself. It causes a significant delay, a couple hours uh, before you know, they were supposed to get into Seattle in the morning. Instead, on July 27th, they got into Seattle around 1.15 p.m., uh, which I'm sure only added to the stress that the, the president was, was experiencing at the time. So uh, that didn't stop the crowds in Seattle, though, because <laughs> they, were, they were super excited. It was very enthusiastic. Uh, they loved that the president was here. Uh, and in the 1920s, the population of Alaska, it was only about 55,000 across the entire state, whereas Seattle had 315,000 uh, just in the city alone. So uh, you're talking about five times greater the size in a single city. So uh, I'm sure that the excitement was, was breathable in the air. Uh, so the president was supposed to give this big speech at the University of Washington around 4 p.m., uh, However, at some point between when the party uh, docked and when that speech occurred, uh, Harry Daugherty, the attorney general, uh, had somehow shown up in Seattle unannounced. Uh, and, th and this is according to Hoover's memoirs. So uh, they talked for about an hour, and I have no idea what Daugherty and Harding discussed in that hour-long meeting. Uh, and the only record I can find of the meeting occurring is from Hoover's memoirs. Uh, but I imagine it must have been very important for him, uh, for Harry to travel all the way from Washington, D.C. to Seattle to meet with the president in person to just, 
you know, convey whatever he was was trying to convey. Uh, they didn't have commercial flights at the time, so uh, it was quite the commitment for him to get out there. Uh, so whatever that conversation is, it happens. It takes roughly an hour, according to Hoover. Uh, and that following afternoon, Harding went to his scheduled speech at 4 p.m. at the University of Washington. So at this point, it seemed that everything that was impacting had overcame him. So his mind was beginning to falter. At one point, he dropped the entire manuscript of the speech uh, and gripped the podium in what appeared to be pain. Uh, the audience, it, they noticed it, that the president was rushing through his speech. There was points where they felt like he was skipping things or skipping pauses, uh, basically kind of just rushing through the whole thing. Um, it, the crowd also noticed, noticed that Mrs. Harding seemed to be paying a peculiar, peculiar amount of attention to him uh, for whatever reason. It could have just been the way a normal way he she watched him or uh, what have you, but she seemed a little bit more nervous, according to some in the, the crowd. Uh, but so after the speech, Harding was rushed back. Uh, and immediately got a consultation from the White House doctor who was traveling with him at the time, uh, whose name was Dr. Sawyer. So uh, Dr. Sawyer takes over a look at him, and uh, his diagnosis was that uh, President Harding likely had food poisoning. So he uh, surmised that they thought there was some bad seafood that he had consumed recently, uh, and he was directed by Dr. Sawyer uh, to take two days rest. So the group canceled their next appearance, which was supposed to be in Portland, and they just head straight to San Francisco. So <laughs> Dr. Sawyer, a little background on him, was a homeopathic doctor. Uh, and so homeopathic uh, physicians, that effectively meant he believed and practiced a now defunct alternative medicine, uh, where my understanding of it and this could be slightly off, is uh, they basically took medicine and they shook it in water, diluting it as many times as possible until basically there was no more medicine or whatever they were diluting uh, left in it. And then that was, the, that was what was supposed to cure the individual. And they said that basically there would be, uh, you know, the essence left over in the water or whatever they were shaking in, um, which has uh, been debunked uh, many times before, but uh, Dr. Sawyer was a family friend of the Hardings uh, and had saved uh, Harding's mom's career at one point when she uh, had accidentally killed a child uh, via giving them a unintentional amount of uh, opioids. So Dr. Sawyer came out and protected Harding's mom and in turn Harding has trusted him for a long time since. Uh, so they, they take that and they agree to it. However, Dr. Sawyer uh, was not the only doctor on board as a naval surgeon uh, had also been stationed on the mission. And his name was Dr. Joel Boone. So Dr. Joel Boone, the next day as the party was around the southern coast of Oregon, uh, came to Hoover and told him that he believed the president was suffering from something much worse than a digestive up, uh, an upset stomach or a food poisoning. Uh, but that Dr. Sawyer would not listen to him or admit it could be anything other than food poisoning. So <laughs> Hoover 
uh, is Uber's a little alarmed, uh, and Dr. Boone obviously is quite concerned on the subject. He's basically going against uh, orders, going against hierarchy, and coming to Hoover, uh, and they are uh, kind of remiss. And so Hoover agrees to to be with him and, and uh, figure this out. So the two of them go over to uh, Hubert Work, who was with the group and was serving as the current postmaster general, uh, basically in charge of the postal service, which was a big position back then. Uh, and uh, many years ago, uh, Hubert Work was also a physician. And so this was kind of like a good uh, third person to ask. He was also a member of the cabinet. And so uh, it would give Dr. Boone's uh, idea that this wasn't just food poisoning more credence. Uh, so when uh, the Postmaster General, Hubert Work, heard Boone's testimony, uh, he also insisted on going to the president's room immediately. So uh, with Work's assistance, Dr. Boone gets clearance to go into the president's room, and the two of them went in while Hoover waited outside. And when they came out, they confirmed exactly what Dr. Boone's suspicion was, that this could not have been a case of food poisoning. So... Hoover hears that, and he immediately calls for some heart specialists uh, in San Francisco to meet them upon their arrival there. So uh, I think that if I had to guess, the crowd's probably a little bit more concerned about what's going on in this boat now, and uh, tension is getting thicker. So uh, once the group made it to the Palace Hotel, which is where they were supposed to be staying in San Francisco, the heart specialists came in, and they concern, uh, confirmed both work and Dr. Boone's diagnosis that the president had a heart attack. Uh, and they classified it as a very serious one. Uh, so uh, this was something, you know, once Hoover heard that, he was significantly stressed out. And at this point, Hoover calls Secretary Hughes back in D.C. to prepare Vice President Coolidge for an oath swearing. Uh, so everybody's on standby. Hoover kind of thinks that Harding is, is on the out. However, the next few days undergoing treatment uh, with a correct diagnosis of, of heart difficulties, uh, they went a lot better. Uh, President Harding starts to recover. Uh, and while they cancel the speeches in San Francisco on July 31st, they did still get the chance to review it via or release it via the newspaper uh, under Harding's direction. Uh, and so things were starting to be on the up and up. And by August 1st, Hoover had called the Secretary Hughes again, letting him know that the worst of it all seemed to be over and that uh, basically Coolidge could probably stand down, that the president seemed to be through the worst of it, which is great. Uh, but, however, in the case of all tragedies, uh, you know, just in the, the brink of time, uh, when they think things were getting better, the president's health again it rapidly declines so while mrs harding was reading a magazine to him that night he had kind of broken out in a sweat uh, so by that time uh, when mrs harding noticed it she removed all the blankets and realized that he was soaked in sweat so uh, mrs harding at that moment she kind of knew the worst was coming and that her husband was on the verge of death so Although Dr. Sawyer, the uh, homeopathic doctor, was in the room, Mrs. Harding uh, runs out and immediately runs to the hall to try and find Dr. Boone. So Dr. Boone is found 
and he sends for Dr. Wilbur, who had been that heart specialist or one of them that had come and met them in San Francisco. Uh, so Hoover, as Dr. Wilbur is uh, being rushed in this hotel, just happens to see him. Uh, and so he joins and uh, rushes to the president's room and is there in person uh, when the declaration occurs that the president has died. So uh, Hoover stated in his memoirs at that time that people do not die from a broken heart, but people with bad hearts may reach the end much sooner from great worries. Super sad. So uh, Hoover again phones Secretary Hughes and says, this time with the instructions, Coolidge is to be sworn in that day as the 30th president of the United States of America. So uh, it's important to note here as well, from my perspective, that the only mention of Darty in this whole affair was in Seattle. So it seemed as though, despite being his longtime friend, his campaign manager, a member of his cabinet, he chose to not follow the group to Portland or to San Francisco to be with his sick, uh, potentially dying friend. So I, I you know, wonder why he didn't go with or you know, did the president not ask him to go? Did he choose not to go instead of you know, turning back around and uh, taking the long voyage back home? And I think it's it's kind of a difficult topic to think about. Uh, but at that time in 1923, back to the story, Harding died as somewhat as of a legend. Uh, he was adored by all citizens. His death, it brought a tremendous sorrow across the nation. You know, and for the Ohio gang, Harry Darty and all of that group, the death of Harding effectively meant that the game was up. So under Coolidge's watch, Harding's uh, great worries would slowly come to light, and his cronies would suffer for it, more or less. Um, three major scandals rocked the executive branch, resulting in arrest, death, public embarrassment. Uh, this was kind of uh, the biggest deal in corruption up until the point of uh, Whitewater, is, is what many historians will agree on. Uh, so the first and most widely publicized scandal was coined the Teapot Dome, and that was involving the Secretary of the Interior, whose name again was Albert Fall, um, who had been selling off federal oil rights in Wyoming to private interests. Uh, Fall had received you know, $7 million in gifts in today's currency and a million dollars in interest-free loans. So he'd been just lining his pockets with the taxpayers' dollars and the United States assets and resources. Um, and it wasn't too... Uh, far off in the other two scandals as well, uh, second one being the, involving the Justice Department, uh, which essentially amounted to several cases of influence peddling that resulted in large payouts to the Ohio gang stationed there, uh, partially from bootleggers and people against uh, prohibition, uh, partly, you know, just a lot of things. Uh, as well as the final major scandal involving the Veterans Bureau, which is kind of where all of this uh, started to come up. Uh, which was basically a defrauding of the construction projects for hospitals and facilities attended to uh, treat World War I veterans. Uh, so uh, we, <laughs> they, were, they were stealing money from uh, you know, the Justice Department, from the veterans, from national resources. And so basically for these two years, it kind of gives a perception that uh, you know, this, this gang was really uh, running amok. In Harding's death, in the wake of that as well, uh, some of his affairs would slowly come to light. Uh, the most popular one at the time 
came from a woman named Nan Britton, uh, who had published basically an expose and a, a tell-all, uh, probably one of the first in, in modern history, uh, and her book was called The President's Daughter, uh, wherein Britton, uh, she basically uh, comes out and says she was in this long affair with the president. Uh, they had done a lot of crazy things, a lot of allegations that they were uh, you know, unfaithful within the White House grounds itself and that Harding was the, uh, you know, her child's father. And uh, this whole expose, it was it was a crazy thing at the time. People were being sold this book in like brown bags, <laughs> going door to door, buying this book, basically undercover because uh, it was so interesting. And the Hardings denied it so fervently. Uh, and it was really controversial. You know, nobody really knew if she was telling the truth. Her accusations were crazy. Uh, and it wasn't actually until 19, or uh, not 19, uh, but 2014. So not even that long ago. Uh, you know, roughly eight years, um, eight, nine years, that uh, a DNA test done by Ancestry.com proved that uh, Nan Britton was right, that <laughs> this the daughter that she had, it it was fathered by Harding. And so um, this kind of contributed another blow to his legacy. Uh, he had uh, as well some, some love letters that came out in the 70s with a different woman. Uh, and so uh, effectively, you know, the once popular president who had uh, been compared to almost, you know, founding father level of, of popularity had basically turned into this corruption-focused, fueled individual who... Uh, was unfaithful and had kids out of wedlock and, and all of this crazy stuff. Um, and so Calvin Coolidge, who had took over the presidency from him, kind of stayed away for a while. He, he became more or less uh, a pariah of history. Um, the uh, group in Ohio at the time had raised enough money to dedicate this uh, big uh, tomb to him in which Coolidge did not partake uh in dedicating it or doing anything with it, really. Um, uh, but Hoover did eventually reverse that. So when Hoover took over the presidency, um, a he did do an official dedication, and he quotes in that speech uh, when he did so that uh, reads, I was who accompanied the late president on his faithful trip. Those who were his companions on that journey came to know that here was a man whose soul was being seared by a great disillusionment. We saw weakening not only from his physical exhaustion, but from great mental anxiety. Warren Harding had a dim realization that he had been betrayed by the few of the men whom he had trusted, by men who, whom he had believed were his devoted friends. It was later proved uh, in the courts of the land that these men had betrayed not only the friendship and trust of their staunch and loyal friend, but they had betrayed their country. That was the tragedy of the life of Warren Harding. There are disloyalties and there are crimes which shock our sensibilities, which may bring suffering upon those who are touched by their imminent results. But there is no disloyalty and no crime in all the categories of human weakness which compares with the failure of probity in the conduct of public trust. Monetary loss or even the shock to moral sensibilities is perhaps a passing thing, but the breaking down of the faith of a people in honest 
in honesty of their government, and in the integrity of their institutions, the lowering of the respect for their standards of honor which prevail in high places are crimes for which punishment can never atone. But these acts never touched Warren Harding. He was a man of delicate sense of honor, a sympathetic heart, of transcendent gentleness of soul who reached out for friendship, who gave it loyally, uh, generous, a man of passionate patriotism. So, uh, really great quote. I think it kind of uh, showcases that Hoover himself was was torn, and, and historians and historians have been torn as well in regards to Harding's uh, impact in the world. You know, he's, he's obviously filled with corruption and, and you know moral malfeasance. Uh, but he did have a lot of positive impacts on the, the previous uh, two years. He had cut the federal budget in half, and the economy was obviously ro- roaring. A lot of people thought that he didn't really have anything to do with it, and that it was mostly his friends, primarily Harry uh, Doherty, who uh, had been the main ringleader of all of this, this crazy stuff that was happening in the, in the country and in the, the government. So, And so I invite you to think about you know, what was Harding's part in all of this? How much did he know about all of the corruption? Uh, or was he really just betrayed by all of his closest friends? Uh, was the partying a problem? Uh, what kind of impact did that have on how we portray our, our political leaders? Uh, was Harding killed? Uh, was it or was it an innocent heart attack? Was it the stress that took him over? Uh, was it maybe potentially a poisoning? Uh, which has been debated in, in history, uh, potentially by either uh, Harry Doherty, who had showed up in Seattle, or by his wife, or even uh, his family doctor, uh, which I find interesting, a uh, little tidbit of information that uh, at Dr. Sawyer's recommendation, Mrs. Harding never performed an autopsy on the president after his death. Uh, so, Well, I don't know exactly how great an autopsy would go in the 1920s. The fact that it didn't occur is is pretty interesting. Uh, And even at the end of it all, Mrs. Harding also grew sick. uh, And in the final months of her life in 1924, she moves in to Dr. Sawyer's estate and dies very soon after, which is, you know, just another suspicious death uh, in this, this whole situation. So... Um, were, were people who knew things being killed off. And that's why there's a lot of uh, mystery surrounding Harding and his, his untimely death is, you know, so many questions left unanswered and so many weird situations that uh, we don't necessarily know the answer to. So uh, what did history learn from these uh, tumultuous two years of Harding's presidency? And uh, what can we learn about this today? So... Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this uh, episode of American Memoirs, and I look forward to talking with you guys again. Thanks.